You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading this show. All right, I have a number of things I want to discuss today, but I want to start off by talking about spiritual stagnation, going through kind of a slump in your Christian walk. And first I want to encourage people that it is and can be relatively normal, and it is especially disheartening to people that remember what it's like to be at a spiritual high point in your life and to really have a lot of love and devotion towards God and the things of God and then to find yourself in a position where you don't uh, feel that same way and you find uh, whether things in your life or uh, your actions or lack of actions are, uh, are are reflecting this. So I want to talk about what to do about it, how to get back to um, the place that you uh, want to be. And I'm speaking from experience here, and I want to first say that it's important to remember that God is you know, still the same God. Your salvation is still the sal- same salvation. If you really understand the righteousness that you are viewed with, that is Christ's righteousness, nothing's changed in, in terms of your spiritual um, uh, righteousness before God. But at the same time, like a parent would look at a child who is still is going astray, that child is still their child, but they're probably planning or uh, subtly making, uh, teaching that child that it would, so that it would go in a different direction. And I would submit that God is probably doing that with you too. He sees that you're in a, maybe not a great spiritual place right now, but he is making plans to get you back to where you belong. And maybe he's even using this podcast to do it, I'm humbled to think. But in any case... Um, once he does that, you will be an even more effective minister to other people. And when you see them going through this kind of thing, which is almost certainly bound to happen and something that you'll be able to recognize. I think a lot of Christians are going through this, but it's not something that Christians talk about with one another. But I bet if you brought it up to just about anybody, they would be able to sympathize and talk about it. And here you might have the answer uh, to how to how to deal with this problem. So there's a few principles here. The first I'm going to discuss in terms of how to get back to um, uh, that good place that that we want to be is a positive one, things to do. And I take this uh, from, I can't remember, I should have done some prep work here, the the, uh, Church of, I don't remember, in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 2 when it's talking about this church that, um, you know, it's doing really good works, you know, it's uh, refuting different uh, false teachings and things like that, but it has left its first love, and the remedy in that situation is to repent and do the first works, do the things that you were doing before. It just tells you to do um, those things, and I would submit that a lot of us that have gone through that initial phase of of you know being or wherever it is that you can remember in your life where you were uh, where you want to be, you are probably doing something that you're not doing now, and so doing those first works is the first step. And I don't mean to say that this is a a work in and of itself. That is to say, okay, you're going to tell me to read the Bible. Well, yeah, read the Bible. That's important. But 
Um, I think that the, an immersion in the things of God is a helpful uh, thing to do. And let me give you some practical advice from things that help me, and maybe some of them will help you too. First, for me, it's a listening thing. I am a serious listener of things on my MP3 player. But I've noticed lately I have been really uh, gravitating towards other things besides the things of God, particularly, you know, I've been reading a ton about history and all kinds of stuff. Uh, even even stuff about Bible prophecy and stuff like that can be kind of like that because it's very intellectual. It's not a very devotional type of thing. But um, And they're more exciting to listen to. When I think about a, a history podcast or a book or something like that, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to listen to this. Or maybe it's Alex Jones or something that's really exciting and you want to listen to that. Um, and you think about listening to, say, verse-by-verse teaching or some good preaching, and you're like, oh, gosh, I don't want to do that. You know, that's boring. I've got all this other stuff. But what I've found, especially if you're listening to really good teaching and really good preaching, that if you just actually do it, you hit the button and start listening to go through the book of Mark or whatever with this particular teacher, you'll find, hey, this is actually really exciting. I wasn't expecting this to be as good as it is. Um, so it's just a matter of doing it. And I think that's the first step, is is filling up your MP3 player with good teaching. And this can also be, of course, audio uh, Bibles and different things like that. And if you have the Christianity 101 DVD that I send out, uh, that I advertise at the end of every one of these shows, it's totally free. I'll ship it to you wherever you are. It's got huge libraries of MP3s from people like David Guzik, who is one of my favorites, um, and just go through a book with him. Anyway, so that's that's one thing. Also, for me, I remember that time of uh, spiritual bliss when I was first saved. Another thing that another first work that I did was I listened to a lot of praise and worship music. The fact is that for me, um, if I don't listen to praise and worship music, there's a very good chance I'm not going to worship God. Um, I may, you know, be thankful towards God and do some other things, but worshiping I probably won't. There are certain songs that help you worship. And, you know, worship music, for the most part, and that category is what does that. But there's certain songs that you may know of that really help you, or you remember in the past, that helped you to worship. And I'm not necessarily talking about Christian songs in general, because there's a lot of songs that are quote-unquote Christian songs that are just about, you know, Christian ideas and, you know, different things that don't really help you to worship. So what I would recommend is finding a worship playlist and putting that on your phone too and or MP3 player or what have you. It's really simple to do. You can get something like the Rocket Player app and, you know, just make a playlist when you find a, a song on the files, just hit add to playlist, you know, and make a worship playlist and shuffle those songs whenever you have the time when you're driving or whatever. So that's an important thing to you've got to the worship really does change things. In addition to once you start to fill your mind with the things of God through teaching and preaching, um, you start to renew your mind in that sense. And of course, prayer and and Bible reading can't uh, be overlooked either. It's something that I've been doing lately with Bible reading that has really been helpful. 
a lot of people have Bible reading plans and things like that. I've talked about them here on the show before. And those are helpful for some people, and it may be great for you. But for me, it, it never has really worked. I, I always get off the plan for one reason or another. But something that I've been doing recently is just going through the Bible. I keep two bookmarks uh, in the Bible, somewhere in the Old Testament and somewhere in the New Testament. I skip around. There's no real order to which books I'll read. But I am trying to go through... Um, one book at a time. Um, so I'll sit down and I'll read a portion from the Old Testament book that I'm going through, and then I'll read some from the New Testament book that I'm going through. And when I finish a book, I make a little dot in the table of context of my Bible, right next to the book that I just got done finishing. And my goal, of course, is to read everything in the Bible. Um, and it's really help- it's really exciting to see, you know, you've got a lot of dots built up. You might want to start off by reading some of the really short books so you can build up some some dots, read you know, Second John and Third John and Jude really quick and or Philemon and you've got uh four books read in one sitting and you'll start uh, thinking, "Hey, you know, I'm getting pretty close to finishing this thing." So that's been helpful for me, and to it helps me to not feel like I'm reading the Bible just to get through it. Um, I can take because it's not really dependent upon, uh, you know, I've got to get through this in a year. I may get through it in a year. I may it may take a year and a half or whatever. I don't know, but it gives me the ability to think about it more. To not just blow through the whole thing and and try to get a dot done. I have the ability, because there's no time limit, to just sort of think about it and, and let it uh, sink in. And of course, of course, prayer is uh, something that you need to do, even if you're just spending five minutes a day um, praying, telling God what's on your mind, uh, talking with Him about whatever it is that you need to talk to Him about is a good place to start. I know everybody... Uh, may put time limits on how much time you need to pray. But look, if you're just spending any time, five minutes of of prayer that's just singled out for that time, that's a good start. And if you commit to at least that, then I guarantee it'll uh, it'll get it'll be more time as you continue to do it. If you can make uh, a stand and say, "I'm going to at least spend five minutes a day in prayer." Five minutes is better than no minutes. So, anyway, I I say these things to encourage you because it really does work. It really does work. If you are in a spiritual state of stagnation, these steps or combination of them will help you. Um, I do need to mention another sort of negative point in Mark 4, 18 and 19 when Jesus is giving the parable of the sower or more accurately, he is giving the interpretation of the parable of the sower, or rather the parable of the soils, I guess. But in any case, he says this about one group of uh, seeds and soil. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the, and the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things enter in, and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So, this lusts of other things entering in and the cares of the world and all these things uh, choke the word and make it become unfruitful. And I think that this can be a problem for a lot of us that we have, uh, we're spending too much time with other things that are choking the word in our lives, whether that's sin 
or whether that's just an overload of information and media and different things. I'm not recommending to you a, a fasting from all entertainment or uh, social media or any of these kinds of things. But I would say that some of you may know exactly, have something right in your head right now that you can say that is probably something in my life. You're thinking of a particular addiction to some show or whatever it might be that you know that uh, that's got to go or at least be moderated. But I would suggest really doing the positive things, getting your zeal for God going through an immersion in God and the things of God will have its effect on these other things. I think really the first step in all the things, whether it's a sin issue that you need to be dealing with or whatever, I think the first thing that you need to do is 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 just start immersing yourself in the things of God and getting that zeal back. Because the zeal and the the fanning of the flame of the Holy Spirit in your life is going to be the thing that's going to actively deal with the other things. Because it's ultimately God and His desires um, that He puts in you that are going to affect all those other changes. But uh, it's sort of a give and take, I guess you could say. In any case, I think that these uh, things may help you. They certainly have helped me. And um, we'll move on to the next issues. Let's discuss some Bible prophecy topics. I've got quite a number that I want to get to today. The first is this question that's often asked, do you think that we're in the last days? And the answer to that, or sort of proof text for that for a lot of people, Bible teachers and so on out there, is Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy, which uh, is a picture of, of these bones uh, that Ezekiel sees, and God restores them, puts flesh on them, and says that it's a picture of him gathering Israel back into the land and restoring them. And this is often referred to as being fulfilled, at least partially, but most people just say fulfilled with um, Israel gaining not just the land of Israel in 48, but also 1967 and the independence um, of Israel. And they say this is a proof that we are in the last days. And of course, since the Gog-Magog War uh, happens a chapter later, they say, you know, this means that the Gog-Magog War is about to happen and all this other stuff. But I want to argue the point that Ezekiel 37, like all the other prophecies of the regathering, which is a very prominent uh, theme in the Old Testament and New, the regathering of both the northern and southern kingdoms and the establishment of uh, this uh, this kingdom is in a messianic context. That is to say that the Messiah must be present for this regathering to happen. And the restoration spiritually is, this isn't just a bodily uh, a restoration of these bones, but it's quite clear it's a spiritual restoration too. My point is that Ezekiel 37 um, is not speaking about what happened in 1948 and 1967. Um, now, I would say to the question of, well, the, they have to be in the land for all the events in the last days to happen. To that, I would say yes. If you ask me, do you think we're in the last days, I would say, I don't know of any particular thing that says that we are in the last days, but I can say that the prerequisites are in place. I wouldn't be surprised if you know it all began tomorrow because the basic prerequisites are there. Um, that is to say, I mean, for the most part, it could all happen relatively quickly. 
but but no, I don't see anything specific that says, oh, we're definitely in the last days now. It's just highly likely because the stage is set. And one of those things on the stage is the Jews are back in the land because, not because of this prophecy, but because, you know, Second Thessalonians 2 and all in Matthew 24 shows us that when the last days happen, the Jews will be back in the land. It doesn't mean that their being back in the land is a result of Ezekiel 37 in any way, shape, or form being fulfilled. In fact, as we're going to discuss, I don't think it's possible for Ezekiel 37 to be fulfilled uh, at the present time. So what happens is they'll quote verses like Ezekiel 37, 21, which says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. That's sort of it. You know, that's just a, a cherry-picked verse that they'll say. This has happened in 1967 and all this other stuff that they say. But they don't read anything after that. And this is why. Let me read a few verses that happen after that. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, nor they shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms. So right there, I could waffle back and forth a little bit. One king, maybe this king is a secular king, maybe it's referring to a president. That's okay, it's kind of half and half. Ezekiel 37, 21 and 22 could fit into the modern interpretation of Ezekiel 37 that it all happened in 1948. But not if you read any more verses, because then it starts to get specific about this king, it starts to get specific about the issues. For example, a verse that they will never read, a number of verses are, are, follow this. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd." They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle shall also be with them, Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, where my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, I think that that needs to be read along with these other verses, because I think that eliminates the possibility of this ingathering to uh, have been fulfilled in 1967, because, first of all, it's obviously clear that this king that's over them is the Messiah. David is the king over them forever. It mentions that several times. He's going to be in their midst forevermore. It mentions that at least two times. Uh, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, that it mentions that at least two times. They will not defile themselves anymore with idols. This is repeated a number of times as well. There's a lot of themes in Ezekiel 37 that simply cannot be reconciled with what happened with 1948 and 1967. The founding principles of Zionism, and I refer to Zionism in the uh, the way a Jewish person would refer to Zionism, the founding principles um, that led to the formation of the modern state of Israel, is by definition 
extremely secular. Um, not just secular in terms of they don't really believe the Bible and they believe sort of the Enlightenment principles of uh, you know the the light the Enlightenment era or whatever. But they uh, are not just secular, but they're of course even those that are religious among them, quote unquote religious, whatever form of Judaism they do take, are extremely anti-Jesus. I mean, just as a matter of course, they consider uh, obviously Jesus not to be the Messiah and are quite disparaging of him. Uh, they may not be worshiping um, idols in terms of you know sacrificing to Baal anymore or whatever, but uh, a lot of the secular stuff that does go down in, in Israel is you know quite uh, bad to God you know in other ways. I mean, for example, it is uh, because of its secular nature, an outgrowth of that is a very strong, for example, alternative lifestyle in Tel Aviv, and it's like one of the bastions for that type of lifestyle in the world. I don't mean to single that out. I think that, uh, you know, just the rejection of Jesus is enough. But uh, all that to say that if this is not just a regathering in the into the land, but also, which it seems to be clear, a, a, a spiritual renewal, then it certainly can't be considered. This, this prophecy of the dry bones can't um, be considered to have been fulfilled. I think that most of the times I hear people reference this passage, it's just a cherry-picked verse. It's just, here's Ezekiel 37, 21. Uh, this proves that uh, you know this has been fulfilled because of 1967. And they just don't mention any of the others. In fact, I've gone through lots of presentations of people, like Chuck Missler and so on, that uh, just simply don't mention this. They just cherry-pick the verse and, and move on as if it's a done deal uh, without uh, offering an explanation for the obvious millennial context of this situation. But the thing that I would suppose that would have to be argued is that this is just a, a, a two-parter. You know, you, you have the regathering that happens first, um, and then once they're there for question mark uh, period of time, then he will restore them spiritually as well. But I think that this goes against the other prophecies of the in-gathering. What I would suggest is happening here is that if you imagine... The 70th week of Daniel, um, 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city to end transgression, to do all the things. The 70th week must complete, that is the final seven-year period, must be over before the uh, Jews will recognize in totality the uh, Messiahship of Jesus. And so we know we need to get past the seven years for this to happen. And the ingathering of Israel... Uh, in terms of this, uh, seems seems to occur after that period. The 70th week ends. There's a 30-day period, a 45-day period. A 30-day period includes the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, I would submit that this is when, you know, Jesus uh, is on, he's obviously on the earth before this. He's on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us he he cracks the mountain too to make a, an escape for people to get out before he uh, throws the last few bowls of judgment on uh, the earth and. You know, the city is broken into three parts, and you know earthquakes and every mountain is is lots of bad destructive things happen before the millennium. The ingathering in other places, and I would submit in this place, is what happens after that. The kingdom is now begun. The millennium has begun, and then people start to come in droves in this new uh, restored kingdom where the Messiah is ruling over them. That's the ingathering as defined by this prophetic principle. 
What I mean about this principle is that if you look at the other places where this ingathering is prophesied, again, this is a very prominent theme. The ingathering is something that is a, a something that the Jews are waiting for. The ingathering to them happens when the Messiah comes, and there's very good reason for them to believe that. For example, Isaiah 11 uh, is a very obvious picture of the millennium. For example, you've got uh, the lions laying with the lambs and all this stuff. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. This is stuff you don't want to try with uh, lambs and lions today. But it uh, goes on to make sure we are definitely talking about the millennium. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and all this stuff. Um, And that day there shall be... A root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the root of Jesse, that is a reference to the Messiah, is there. Um, that's, you know, th- during this millennium and this time of, uh, of fruitfulness and, and restoration, the, the Messiah is there. So I want to point out that this is all happening first in this, in this context. Um, but then you find this idea of it shall come to pass in that day. So it's, it's showing that something further will happen as as in addition to this other great stuff Isaiah 11:12 says he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the the dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth also the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim but they shall fly um, anyway so the point is is that it makes this uh, another clear point about the two houses of Israel being combined, which is what Ezekiel 37 spends quite a lot of time doing. It's talking about the two sticks. One is Judah and Ephraim, and they're being joined together and all this stuff. This ingathering of the house of Israel in Isaiah 11, of almost a mirror image of Ezekiel 37, is obviously after the the millennium has began begun lions are laying down with lambs the root of jesse is there ruling over them and then in that day they're going to be gathered okay so the ingathering is as a result of the millennium being begun not a not the first thing that's supposed to happen because i think that the only way again that people can deal with ezekiel 37 and if in this modern sort of version of it is to say, oh, the ingathering happens happens first, be it secular, be it uh, anti-Jesus, be it all these other things that it is, and and then the restoration comes later, the spiritual restoration and the Messiah and whatever. In the other passages of this prophecy, it's definitely not reversed like that. Um, but let's look at another one. In Jeremiah three seventeen and eighteen, it says. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. Here we have again Judah and Ephraim, or Israel, the northern kingdoms, being referred to as being united. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. So, in context here, again, when Jerusalem is called the throne of the Lord, that is a reference to the Messiah being there, then Judah and Ephraim are going to join together and and return to the land. The ingathering, again, is a result of the messianic context. It's not a a precursor to the, the, the Messiah coming back. 
So all these passages, like Ezekiel 37, are referring to the ingathering uh, in a millennial context. All this stuff is, Ezekiel 37 is talking about the state of the world in the millennium. The ingathering is a result of that. Uh, it's a much more blessed ingathering than anything that we could say is happening in 1967 or 1948. Um, though I'm not disparaging that. I'll talk about that in a minute. But we know that the ingathering in this context has to happen at least after the 70-week period because that's the purpose of the 70 weeks. That it needs to be, that seven-year period needs to end before they uh, they are accept the Messiah, that they're given all these, uh, uh, the, the end of transgressions and all the stuff that uh, Daniel 9 talks about that will happen at the end of the 70th week period. So, the, and I believe that Armageddon happens uh, probably around 30 days after the end of the 70 weeks. So the earth is in bad shape all the way up through Armageddon at the very least. Um, so there's no really good reason for people to be in-gathering before then. It, again, everything in Ezekiel 37 is post-Armageddon. The restoration of Israel has already happened at that point in terms of their recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. Then when the earth is restored, the lambs are laying down with lions and the rest of it, kids are sticking their hands in snake pits and the rest, then the in-gathering happens in its totality. That's sort of the the statement of scripture about this ingathering and uh, what we're seeing and have seen happen with 48 and 67 just is not in any way uh, um, what Ezekiel 37 is talking about. Um, but I'm not making this point to make a commentary good or bad about what's happened in 48 and 67. My personal view is that it's a really good thing from a humanitarian perspective I think it's one of the greatest things that's happened in history, and uh, that probably comes from me reading too much history lately. But uh, but really, the 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 plight of the Jews over the last, well, really since the fall of uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. has just been one tragedy after another tragedy. Everywhere that they tried to go in Europe, uh, even just if they succeeded for a time and not uh, being persecuted, they never were granted any real rights. Uh, and eventually those those small pockets in Europe all closed around them, not just with the Inquisitions, but well up into the 1900s and, and through World War II. And I think that those grottos and things uh, were just not sustainable. And that's one of the reasons that this movement uh, of Zionism uh, uh, came into being is because the recognition that uh, it was doomed and that the Jewish way of life and um, all the rest of it would be extinct if it weren't for um, the the creation of the modern state of Israel. So I am not one of these people who are against that or whatever. I know that there's a lot of talk about that. I don't even want to, you know, hear about that in terms of you know fights about it. I, I understand where you're coming from and the rest of it, but from my perspective, it's a great thing that happened, and maybe even God um, played a role in that. And, and, you know, used, even though it was a secular mindset and everything else and all the negative things that a person could say about uh, that initial uh, progression towards a, the state of Israel. Yeah, there was probably a lot of bad dealings and stuff like that. But, yeah, God could have orchestrated that through uh, bad people. He certainly used people like uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Tiglath Pileser III and uh, a whole lot of people that were doing some pretty negative things to accomplish his purposes um, before, so I don't see any problem with him being 
involved in that, but him being involved in that is not the same thing as what happened in Ezekiel 37, if that makes any sense. It's just not the same thing. And at the very least, you could say that God simply said that in the future, the Jews would be back in the land, making a pretty unemotional commentary in the saying, this is what's going to happen first, this is going to happen, then the Antichrist is going to uh, sit in the temple and stuff like that. He's just telling us the future. Um, he's not saying... And I'm really glad that, um, you know, the Jews are building a temple and everything and uh, thinking that they're getting, you know, righteous because of that. He's just saying there's going to be a temple there and the Antichrist is going to sit in it. And he's just telling us that that's the way it's going to be. While we're on that subject of the temple and the idea of the temple institute and the rest of it, I want to say a few things about that. Um, I think that the temple institute, this group that is often... Uh, uh, cited by Christians as, you know, they've got the red heifer and they've got the, the menorah already built and all these different implements that, that are needed for temple service. All they're waiting for is, you know, the right circumstances politically or whatever to build the temple. And as seen, we're seeing that as a good thing. Now, I expect most of you guys to know that um, the only real reason a Christian should be excited about that is that it's possible that that's the, going to be the same temple that the Antichrist sits in. And therefore, if it is the same temple that the Antichrist sits in, it means that the coming of the Lord is uh, nearer um, than it would have been without it being built. It doesn't mean it's going to happen instantly or whatever. There's nothing really we should be looking forward to about that temple at all. And I want to make a few points about that. First of all, the Temple Institute, which would probably be the people that would um, that would be called upon to to play a role in this temple being rebuilt, if it ever did be rebuilt, um, under the circumstances that most people think that it would be, then then they're planning on building basically a replica of Solomon's temple, um, something that is definitely not a part of God's plan for his temple. We're, we as Christians are the next sort of, if you will, good temple that will be built is Ezekiel's temple, uh, which is described in the last uh, nine chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48. And it's a totally different ballgame. I mean, that temple is the size of the current city of Israel. It's just not even close. In fact, if you look at the temple's website, when asked about this Ezekiel's temple, which is supposed to be the next one that they're going to build, if they, you know, were uh, concerned about that at all, then they say, you know, it's just, there's just a lot of elements we don't understand. And, you know, and I don't even think that we can understand it. And basically they're just not going to try for that one. And of course you can't blame them. They're not going to build a temple the size of the current city of Israel. But there's a number of things that are uh, wrong with this. First of all, if you look at the Temple Institute's website, it's got a big picture of the Ark of the Covenant on it, on it, on the banner of the website. And um, this is a problem. Now, they would say, and they're sort of famous for saying that they know where the Ark of the Covenant is, and you know when the right time comes, they'll let everybody know where it is, and blah, blah, blah. They say that all the time. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the problem with that is that the Bible is explicit that this temple, the next temple that God wants to be built, will not have the Ark of the Covenant in it. Jeremiah 3.16 says this expressly. It says, um, Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increase in the land in those days, says the Lord, 
that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. The Ark of the Covenant in this time, we read a little from Jeremiah 3 earlier. This is the time when it's definitely speaking of the millennium. At that time, they're not going to say, where's the Ark of the Covenant? They're not going to care about it. It's not going to be made anymore. It shall not come to their mind. This is not an important part of God's plan for this next temple. And uh, I, I would really be interested in what they would have to say about these kinds of, of things. But nevertheless, it's just sort of the state of uh, of where we're at. You know, this is an interesting idea here about the, the Temple Institute, and I'll just spend a few more seconds on it. They are, you know, very politically uh, astute. They, you know, a lot of Christians visit the Temple Institute and things like this, but you need to know, I mean, they're not, they're not uh, sympathetic to the Christian message at all. Here's a few quotes from, um, what's his name, uh, Rabbi, is it Richman or Rickman? He's kind of the head guy there. He says, we do not accept the notion that Scripture foretells that God would be, uh, robe, would robe himself in flesh. We believe this idea to be the in very embodiment of idolatry. Here's an interesting one. He says, The reason why Jews like myself do not accept Jesus as the Messiah is a very basic one. We do not see that he fulfilled any of the requirements for the job. He, If he never qualified, uh, it is not even a question of rejection. God outlined these requirements in the Bible. The identity of the Messiah is not up to you or me. It is up to his performance to prove. This is the almost a mirror image of one of the quotes I quoted from Rabbi Glickman in the uh, book that I uh, hope will be out relatively soon, where when asked, you know, well, we've accepted a lot of false messiahs in the past. How are we supposed to know uh, if the next messiah is is the real one? And the answer is simple. They say uh, it's, it's easy. All, all we need to know is if the next guy conquers our enemies, builds a temple, makes Jerusalem the capital, capital city of the world. Those three things are what needs to happen. They need to, and the problem with that, of course, as I see it, is that those are the things that the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will do. He's going to conquer the enemies of Israel, Daniel eleven forty through 45. He's going to build a temple, Daniel uh, uh, 9, uh, 26 and 27. And he's going to start the daily sacrifices, Daniel 9, uh, 26 and 27. And he, though he's going to end them three and a half years later, but nevertheless, uh, he does start them. And then he's going to make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. Um, this is a, uh, uh, obviously a, a requirement in the Old Testament because that's what's going to happen in the millennium. But they were waiting for that too. So the, and I think that, ha- of course, happens in Revelation 17 and 18. If you read my book, Mystery Babylon, when Jerusalem embraces the Antichrist. But these are all things that the, the Antichrist does. And so it's really, really bad um, argument to say, we're just waiting for a guy to do these things because the Bible tells us that this is what uh, the Antichrist is going to do, and it's going to be a very tempting um, uh, thing for the Jews to believe that uh, the Antichrist is the Messiah, in my opinion. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about today is this uh, phrase, the Great Tribulation, um, and what it really means. A lot of people say phrases like the seven-year tribulation or the tribulation period and they are thinking of a the entire 70th week of daniel now i don't want to make this an argument about uh, which rapture view is correct or whatever i of course uh, believe in the pre-wrath rapture which is um 
kind of in between uh, uh, pre-trib and, and post-trib. It's uh, taking probably the best of, of both worlds there, but I think it's a very cohesive view. You can see my uh, uh, video called The Rapture Puzzle Solved with Matthew 24. But anyhow, this is not an issue that I think should be controversial, to, no matter what view of the rapture that you hold. But it is one of the biggest barriers to talking sensibly about Bible prophecy because we all are saying the wrong thing or believing the wrong thing about this tribulation period. The main thesis I'm going to uh, say here is that the tribulation period, according to the Bible, begins at the abomination of desolation explicitly. This is when uh, Jesus says, for then there will be great tribulation. Well, when is then? And just a few verses before, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let them who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is in the housetop not go down. All this sort of stuff, he goes on to talk about the abomination of desolation. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until that time, no, nor ever shall be. The only other time this phrase, great tribulation, is used is in Revelation chapter 7, when John says, uh, uh, for, uh, excuse me, where is it? Revelation seven fourteen, And I said to them, sir, you know, he's talking about this, uh, these multitude of people in heaven and John is having a conversation with them. And he's saying, uh, the angel is saying, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And he, and I said to him, sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in, uh, in the blood of the lamb. So, the Great Tribulation, if we just take a word study here, what Great Tribulation are we talking about? You know, you're saying something in Revelation about a Great Tribulation. What could you possibly be referring to? And the only place that you can go is Matthew 24, or the Olivet Discourse, where uh, Jesus tells you that at that time there will be a Great Tribulation. And that's after the midpoint of the seven-year period. So, it's not correct to say that the entire... Um, seven-year period is uh, the tribulation period, or a seven-year tribulation. It's not a seven-year tribulation. It's at least a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. It may be, I can get into some other arguments about how long it is or whatever, but the point is, is that it starts at the midpoint, and it does not include the first three-and-a-half years. Even uh, most people that, uh, you know, your standard views that are out there about the rapture and when it happens in the 70th week of Daniel would say that the first three and a half years are, you know, a time of peace and, you know, uh, uh, the false peace of the Antichrist and all this other stuff that's going on. So that doesn't sound like a tribulation period. You know, I mean, I think that even the Antichrist, in their view, is trying to to play nice for the most part there. I wouldn't see it that way necessarily, but the point is that uh, even in, in the people that keep using this term, the great, the seven-year tribulation, by their own admission, the first three and a half years is, is not uh, that bad. The tribulation happens when he sits in the temple, declares himself to be God, and then begins a persecution that is like no other that's ever been or ever will be. These phrases is, is there to amplify that. That's why it's a great tribulation because it's going to, after the abomination, it's going, the Antichrist is going to start something that has never happened before nor will ever happen again. Okay, they go, Jesus goes to great lengths to say this thing is going to be great. In Greek, megastelipsis. It's going to be a great tribulation. 
uh, he's making a distinction of what happens after the abomination of desolation. So when I refer to um, this seven-year period, which is very, in my opinion, a very uh, a clear teaching of the Bible, I will I will call it the seven-year period, or if I need to refer to the entire seven years, or I might just call it the 70th week of Daniel. I use terms like that. You'll never catch me using the terms the tribulation period or the seven-year tribulation. I'll never say that because... Um, it's wrong, and I know what people mean by it, but I've found recently, and just trying to discuss this, the simplest matters, some of this stuff with the recent video about the Gog-Magog war, has been almost impossible me, for me to explain to somebody what's going on, because they have it in their mind, this idea of a seven-year tribulation period um, that doesn't seem like it would even matter, but it just comes up over and over and over. So, that was just a quick thing. I just want you guys, no matter, no matter what you believe about the rapture, to refer to this correctly. There's only two places in the Bible that refer to a great tribulation. And uh, Jesus explicitly tells us that that great tribulation occurs after the abomination of, or instigated by the abomination of desolation, which occurs absolutely at the midpoint, the three and a half year mark um, in that seven year period. So... All right, that's all for me today. I want to remind you uh, about a number of things. First of all, Turboverse.com, the new app for Android devices to help you memorize scripture. It really works. It's a totally new way to memorize scripture that uh, uses real audio. It would really help me out if you downloaded the app and reviewed it on the Play Store. But keep in mind, I'm having some trouble getting it to show up on the results for even if you type in directly Turboverse.com, it's not showing up until like the 30th uh, uh, thing it's really frustrating and I don't know if that's a lack of downloads or, or whatever I think it's some other issues I don't know but the best way to get to the app right now is just go directly to the website turboverse.com and I would really appreciate your feedback and downloads and ratings on that and uh, just remember the things I talked about today I talked about uh, the spiritual uh, uh, stagnation and we talked about Ezekiel 37 and the Temple Institute and the Great Tribulation. I appreciate everybody for your patience with these podcasts, and uh, we will hope to talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.